Who were the best fantasy hitter and pitcher this season? How about the most valuable? How about the least valuable? We'll ask Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com and Todd Zola of Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire in our regular season roundup roundtable next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, October the 7th. It's show number 46 and our regular season roundup roundtable edition. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and it's a great show for you. Ray Murphy, Todd Zola, and I will discuss the best players, the worst players, the most and least valuable players, and the surprise players from 2016. And then we'll look ahead to the 2017 fantasy season as well. We'll have a couple of clips from the inimitable Vin Scully, including one at the end of the show you don't want to miss. It's going to be another great show. Thanks for joining us. Hey, what do you say? Trout? Altuve? Bets? We gotta talk some baseball. And let's get rolling by welcoming our roundtable participants, starting with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com. Ray, thanks for taking part in this roundtable edition. Happy October, Patrick. It is a happy October for many people. Uh, Todd Zola from Masters Ball and ESPN and Rotowire, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the very last time. You make it seem so final. The very last time this year, right? Well, maybe not, actually. I guess we'll see what happens as the winter meetings roll around in December. We might uh, we might recongregate in case uh, to discuss any big deals that happen in the offseason and so forth. But for now, let's say this is going to be the last one for a while. And uh, before we get started, let's run through how everybody did in their expert leagues. Uh, Todd, I know you uh, got a monkey off your back in uh, tout. How'd your uh, expert league season go? Uh, I think they went okay. Um, I... Uh Ended up taking a, a double dip. I won the NL Tout Wars, and I won the Mixed Labor. So I uh, had a good year as far as that goes. I, I kind of I figure I, I, it's kind of like when you win the majors but lose all the other tournaments. Because I mean I didn't win every single league I played in, but if you know I, I won the two majors and that's good. And I'm pretty proud of this. I came in the top 50 in the NFBC. Top 50. That's pretty darn good. It is pretty good. That's a lot of people competing. Uh, Ray, how did you do in your Experts League and in F- NFBC now that Todd has raised it? Can we just talk about this for the full hour? Do we have to go on and do <laughs> anything else? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had some pretty comparable results to Todd. Uh, I won the FSTA Experts League. I finished second to Todd in labor. Uh, I, I couldn't finish second to, tout, to Todd in tout because I wasn't in that league. Uh, but, you know, getting somewhat in the way of the Zola train was a good thing. Uh, and in the NFBC, I won my league and finished fourth overall. So take that, Todd. Oh, really? I didn't know that, Ray. <laughs> so 50th. <laughs> Thanks for the Ray, setup. Ray, congratulations. I'm being, a, I'm being a wise guy. I know how hard that is. Congratulations, Ray. That's a great pull. <laughs> Yeah, I have mixed emotions about it. It's tough when you're, you know, in, in, flirting with the lead as late as mid-September. But, you know, there's absolutely, uh, you know, with, with even a day or two's worth of perspective here, there's uh, there, there's nothing but good things to say about finishing fourth out of 450. 
and a nice little payday, I shouldn't wonder as well. Uh, for my part, earlier in the season, I won the Tout Wars uh, Daily Championship to the chagrin of some people <laughs> uh, because uh, I kind of got in on a on the basis of one good four week run where I finished top ten four straight weeks and and got in. And I had a very exciting last last night to nose to nose with Tristan Cockcroft and edged him at the very end on a on a run scored by Brandon Geyer in most unlikely circumstances. So that was pretty pleasant. And I finished second in the American League tout, which was uh, really exciting for me. I was uh, nip and tuck with um, Seth Trackman down the stretch. And I tell you what, if we'd have had one more week, I think I'd have caught him because he was really struggling, but it was a very exciting race. And uh, I should thank Todd Zola for running that league. Well, that was a uh, that was an interesting league. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad the season wasn't another week long because Mr. Murphy and a couple other guys, I, I know I had a big lead in, in mixed labor, but it was shrinking and it was shrinking fast. So uh, I was sort of happy that there were no, um, you know, as much as I love baseball, I did not, you know, I did not want there to be 162 and then a couple of 163s because I didn't have a whole lot of Toronto and Baltimore and Detroit, some very fantasy friendly teams that could have been playing extra games. So uh, I, you know, maybe I don't know Ray if that would have helped you in the uh, in the NFPC at all. So uh, sorry about that. But as far as personal selfishness goes, I'm happy the season ended when it did. I am in that boat too. I was you know, running on fumes in a couple of different places and needed to uh, hit the the exit buzzer before anybody else flew past me. I was curious about what you guys saw in the experts leagues or in uh, other leagues that you play in about the uh, volatility of a uh, very tight uh, categories. I noticed in in Tout Wars this year much more than in any of the Tout Wars competitions I've been in or any league I've been in that I can remember. A lot of the categories were extremely tight, where where players were bouncing up and down four or five points in a night because the uh, the difference between three points and nine points was uh, a handful of stolen bases or two earned runs or something like that. Did you guys notice uh, any tightening of the categories as a general thing? Well, in, in NL Tout, Derek Cardi and I, uh, our colleague Derek, we were we were jumping up the past two weeks, and if, again, if the season had gone another day. Who knows how it would have ended up? It just happened to be that it ended up on a day that I was leading, and the, the you know I, I'm the guy that talks about you know ratios, ratios, but in this league, uh, strikeouts were extremely tight. It's just a matter of who had the pitchers going that day, and the, the, they were just so tight. There was a bunch of five or six of us that if you had two or three starters going, you were the one that led the league or let got the more points you know that day. So the, it, yeah, it was sort of interesting in the. Um, the mixed labor, there was a lot of jockeying. Uh, it was a great race for second. Uh, at one point, Mike Podhorser came up, and then Fred, the uh, you, just, you know, the relentless Fred Zinke, along with the relentless Ray. So there was a lot of jockeying for second place in my league. But yeah, I, I mean, the, the point being, yeah, I do think, and I think it's just a matter. I think it has something to do with just the quality. There's just there's just no holes in these. You know, people like. And experts saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's just there's no bad players out there. There's just it's just a really solidly competitive leagues, and I think it just makes for a great a great roto run. Yeah, my take on it was I always have the perception that you know for any number of obvious reasons it gets really hard to start moving the standings in September. You know, ratios crystallize with giant denominators, and usually you get some separation in a lot of counting stats and usually you get down to the point where there's really only a couple of places where you know the, w people are still battling but 
especially in the overall NFBC standings, I was sort of amazed at how many people made real charges in September, not just holding out for dear life like I was doing, but there were some people who clearly had their teams hitting on all cylinders in September and just flying up the standings. And I was really kind of sitting there thinking, this is September, you know, we're dealing with September call-ups, expanded rosters. It should be hard to do this. How are you making these kind of moves? So, you know, some people clearly found a way to bottle some September momentum in a way that I, I don't recall seeing. Well, you got the Gary Sanchez's and Trey Turner's that help some teams. So, I mean, but every year, right? Every year there's guys like that. So, it, it, I just think, it, you're right, Patrick. I do think it was one of those years where there's more AL labor. The uh, There was a four-point swing in the last week. So, I, I do think that there was a lot of stuff that, uh, not exactly sure why, and it may have to do with the, uh, decrease in steals making the category more condensed and and you know everybody hitting home runs i don't know but i do think there i do think your observation isn't just like a one-year thing or at least it's real it it occurred speaking of ratio categories i've i'm always been in the camp that it's very difficult because of what ray said about the large denominator at the end of the year we play in tow wars we play uh, on base percentage so you're talking about most teams having 7,000 plate appearances, roughly, some of them even more, depending on how they constructed their rosters. That's an awful hard number to move with such a big denominator. But I went from three points in on-base percentage to nine in the last 10 days of the season. And, I mean, my, my team was hitting, uh, was OBPing in 550, 600 a night, and, and it was uh, climbing up very rapidly because of that. But other guys were also making moves in this on-base percentage category, and that's what really struck me as odd that you could make that big a move. I, I, I also gained a, a couple of uh, whip points because I, I gained like 15 one-hundredths of a whip point in a week. And it, I just don't ever remember seeing it, the categories being that tight in the past. And I hope it continues because it does make for way more exciting uh, races. One of these years, you guys will believe me. I've been saying it for years. Ratios are easier to move than counting scats. And we'll give Todd the last word on that. We'll move on to the players this year. Segment one, you guys, uh, first of all, let's just talk about the best players in fantasy baseball this year, the best producers, never mind their prices, never mind their salaries, just who was the best. And let's start with Ray. Uh, Who did you think was the best fantasy batter of the year? I've got to go with the little guy, Jose Altuve, just what he could give you by way of foundational stats and what he did this year with a batting average that was flirting with 330 and 340, excuse me, and 25 homers, 30 stolen bases, pushing 100 RBIs, pushing 110 runs, all from you know a second base position. That's you know, in this environment that Todd sort of alluded to, where speed is hard to come by, and you know we all pay attention to scarcity issues of both positional and category. This is sort of the you know, the perfect building block season. That if you had Altuve, even with a you know, mid or late first round pick or you know thirty dollar investment. Not only did he return what you paid for him, but he provided so much flexibility and versatility in how you built the rest of your roster and how you went out and searched for the cheaper power that was seemingly everywhere this year. It seems like he's just the the perfect you know foundation for a, for a fantasy team this year. He gets my vote. I think it came down to three guys, and I don't think anybody's going to disagree with me. It was Trout, Betts, or Altuve, all American League players this year. And uh, I think in Tout, or any on-base league, I think Mike Trout gets the edge because his on-base percentage was well over 400, and that's a huge advantage in those leagues. 
But in regular 5x5, I'm going to go with the BaseballHQ.com valuation, which says Mookie Betts barely outweighs Jose Altuve because of a few extra home runs and RBIs and runs scored, offsetting Altuve's uh, four extra steals and 18 uh, batting average points. I could take any of these three guys happily this year, but... uh, I have to say, I, I took a little bit of static at Tout Wars for paying 39 bucks for Mookie Betts, and uh, I'm pretty pleased that it, it were, I was correct in assuming that Mookie Betts was going to have this kind of year. Uh, Todd, who's your man? I'll break the tie. Uh, my valuation is barely tipped it to Mookie Betts. Now, to, to Ray's point, I didn't... I didn't. I don't feel well. I don't believe there's such a thing as, as position scarcity. But I didn't. I didn't factor in the roster flexibility and how you can build your roster with Altuve, which does, which you know is is important. But I just went strictly by what my dollar value thing said, and it was bets. Now I'm a little surprised, but Altuve kind of stopped running after the second half, so it, it was close enough that if Altuve had one or two more steals, I'd be breaking the tie with Altuve now. So uh, I, I, you know, I wouldn't want to live off the difference between the two. But I think what helped Mookie, as far as this sort of thing goes, is when he went down to the cleanup, his RBIs really picked up. I mean, the guy had 113 RBIs leading off most of the season. Now, a lot of that had Jackie Bradley batting eighth and ninth, et cetera. But the numbers he just put up were just were just silly. So uh, bets by a hair over Altuve with Trout in third. You know, that's an interesting point of view is that we, we have to give credit. A lot of people say you shouldn't give credit. The uh, MVP debate is raging online right now, and a lot of people saying, yeah, Mike Trout didn't have as good of a counting year as Mookie Betts did, but he plays for a much worse team, and then does, how does that affect value, et cetera, et cetera. But in fantasy, we can't worry about that. I think when you go into draft or you're sitting at the auction table and you're trying to assess whether to go the extra dollar on a Mike Trout or a Mookie Betts, you are going to look at what team he's on, and you are going to say, man, those Angels don't look like they're going to score a ton of runs, and those runs and, and RBIs, they count. And I think we have to count them when we're trying to figure out who had the best year. And yeah, he was on a better team, but that's part of how we figure it out. Yeah, we say that, but Mike Trout scored 123 runs. I think he led the league. So, I mean, I kind of shook my head. I mean, a lot of that was, you know, sneaky production from a C.J. Crone and stuff. But he, he it actually, the, the Angels did have a, a stretch right after the break where they were hitting the ball really well, too. So it wasn't quite the poor offense that we might think. But um, I actually, I made a mistake this year. We had this talk. In, in March, I believe, and I actually had Paul Goldschmidt as my number one over Mike Trout because I was using the, I thought Trout was a better player, but Goldschmidt on the better team. And actually, as it turns out, Goldschmidt ended up on my numbers fifth overall after all this stuff about what's happening wrong with Paul Goldschmidt. And a lot of that was the 20-something, 29 steals. But he's still, in my numbers, that was the fifth was the fifth ranked hitter overall. So there's nothing wrong with that. But, I mean, one of the take-home lessons for next year for me is I don't know, listen, Trout, Goldschmidt, Goldschmidt, Trout, whatever, but I'm not going to, I mean, team's a factor, and especially when you think about Mookie Betts, because gravity is going to pull the the Red Sox run score down. Uh, I just did a little, a, a quick study, and the team that leads the league in runs, it, it, it's a fairly large fall the next season. Now, Betts can afford a pretty good fall and still be a, obviously, really good player, but... Um, uh, you know, to expect to repeat, to expect to repeat from the Toronto hitters this year, and we saw most of them did not repeat. So I'm going to, I mean, team context is a factor, obviously, but it kind of gets baked into my numbers anyway, but I'm not going to make the same decision or the same mistake and say, I like Trope better than Goldschmidt, but I think Goldschmidt's team's a little bit better, so I'm taking him. Um, I'm going to, if it's that close, I'm going with a better player. 
Let's move on to the best fantasy starting pitcher. I'll start off here, again, relying pretty much on baseball HQ values, plus my own eyesight. I thought Max Scherzer was the class of the field this year, $34 pitcher. And I don't know that there's going to be much debate about it. I'm curious to hear what you guys have to say. The amazing thing to me about the year was that Clayton Kershaw was actually pretty close to Max Scherzer despite missing 12 starts. So this just in, Clayton Kershaw is really good. Uh, Todd, what do you think? Yeah, my, my, my you, know, you know, numbers in a vacuum have the same thing. Now, if you want to make an argument that if you lost Kershaw and for that time you were able to put in a reliever or able to use another pitcher, the numbers would have boosted him past Max. But in a vacuum unto itself, Max Scherzer barely nosed out, nosed out Clayton Kershaw uh, for my number one starting pitcher. Yeah, I agree with that. I had Scherzer as well. And the thing that really put it over the top for me was the strikeout total. Uh, you know, Kershaw's kind of been breaking the scale the last couple of years. Last year, in fact, he struck out over 300 guys, which we hadn't seen in a very long time. But Scherzer got to 284 this year, which sort of in the non-Kershaw division is pretty epic on its own we hadn't seen anybody other than Kershaw crack 280 since I think it was Randy Johnson in 2004 so in addition to the 20 wins the sub three ERA the sub one whip the 284 strikeouts out of one lineup position is really you know kind of to my point about Altuve just such a boost as you're starting to build a pitching staff and allows you to you know chase chase fewer innings elsewhere or roster a reliever or maybe you can get away with having uh say a cheaper Mark Belanson as your closer instead of uh you know Kenley Jansen type so you know those kind of offsets to me you know really are what uh, are a big part of the value that shirts are brought so it's a clean sweep for Max Scherzer uh, before we close the segment let's talk about relief pitchers uh who was the best uh, fantasy relief pitcher Todd well I had Kenley Jansen a combination of strikeouts and uh in the saves so it, it was it was close, uh, but Jansen turned out number one for me. I'll disagree. I was with Z- I was on the Zach Britton bandwagon. Didn't have the strikeouts that Jansen had, but the ERA and WHIP were just so ungodly that to me the uh, the overall value proposition there worked pretty well in Britton's own right. I think he was uh, what zero point five four ERA and zero point eight four WHIP. I mean, those are just video game silly numbers. So uh, I I opted for Britton by a nose over Jansen. Well, I thought that all the Cy Young talk for relief pitchers was focused on Britain in the American League, but I thought Kenley Jansen, same number of saves, 33 more strikeouts, a little bit higher on the ERA side, actually quite a bit higher, but a lower whip. Uh, just on the strikeouts, uh, Jansen gets my vote in a in a very narrow competition with Zach Britton, and I'm going to be very curious to see how these two guys go in uh, mixed leagues next year as well. So that's our uh, best fantasy players for 2016. When we come back, we'll talk about player values. That's a whole different argument coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, I'm Ray Murphy, co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com. I'm inviting you to join me at First Pitch Arizona, November 3rd through 6th in Scottsdale. It's three days jam-packed with seminars, scouting reports, workshops, and fantasy drafts. And best of all, First Pitch Arizona is three great days just talking baseball with hundreds of serious fantasy players like you and all of the top industry experts. And don't forget the ball games. First Pitch Arizona is your chance to scout 2017's impact rookies from your own front row seat. To get the details and to register, visit BaseballHQ.com and click on the giant First Pitch Arizona logo on the right side of the homepage. First Pitch Arizona 
Come see for yourself why the fantasy baseball winners who attend every year call it the most fun you can have outside of draft day. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron, who was met at home plate not only by every member of the Braves, but by his father and mother. He threw his arms around his father, and as he left the home plate area, his mother came running across the grass, threw her arms around his neck, kissed him for all she was worth. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com and Todd Zola from MastersBallESPN and Rotowire.com. Our end-of-season roundtable, we're talking about the players and the stories, and we've already gone through the best players. Now let's talk about the most valuable players, and I'd like to start with the most valuable hitter, the hitter who delivered the most profit. A little later on, we'll be talking about the ones who busted and cost their owners money, but let's start off with the best value hitter and Ray Murphy. Oh, I'm going to have to go with my personal hobby horse for the year, uh, Jonathan VR, who turned from a, uh, you know, somewhere around 15, round 20 single digit investment into, you know, one of the most valuable players in all of fantasy. I'm pretty sure he finished in the uh, top 15 overall with 19 homers, a cool 62 stolen bases, a nice 285 batting average, and, you know, something pushing a $40 player, depending on your format. So for me, this season was as simple as, 
I finished first or second on teams that had Jonathan Villar and did nothing on teams that didn't. So he fits this category to a T for me. I also have Jonathan Villar of Milwaukee. He was, as you said, an in-game pick in many mixed leagues. I think he probably got picked in National League only a little higher because he had a job at the start of the season. But we all thought that he was keeping the shortstop seat warm for Orlando Arcia, and instead he gets the start and just uh, he ran with it, you got to say. $35, I think, was the HQ valuation. The 19 home runs, a big surprise. He led all of baseball with 62 bags, I think, and 92 runs scored, even 63 RBIs. And like Ray says, I bet most fantasy teams who had Jonathan VR did really well this year. Todd, who's your value hitter? It's not Jonathan VR, and it, and, and I, I mean for the basic reason was I was higher on him than most people were coming into the season because I I just felt he was going to continue to play. Now I didn't give him 650 at bats. I gave him closer to 450 to 500, but he came out to a 15 to 17 dollar player for me in mixed. So um, for me, I mean, yeah, he he was a very I didn't expect him to do what he did. But I went for a guy, I look for, I, one of the things I did here, I didn't just look for a total plus in the in the plus column because I don't want to take a guy that was like minus 12 and then plus 22, something like that, because we weren't even going to draft the minus 12. So uh, the, the the guy that, that came out for me, um, I think was Almedes Diaz. Now, because Eduardo Nunez was close. I don't think he was taken in mixed leagues. He was the guy that had the biggest plus in my book. But Almedes Diaz was probably taken in the, towards the end of the the end, and even though he missed time, he still had some profit. But I'll I'll give the the uh, honorable mention to to Nunez just because he uh, it was he would close to being drafted. He may have been drafted in some leagues, and at least in a reserve role. So Nunez actually had the biggest jump from projected to earned. Uh, you know the guys that might have been drafted in say a 15 team mixed. I looked at a bunch of mixed leagues when I was making up my list, and Nunez was drafted in a lot of leagues because he had a he had a role in Minnesota, which uh, you know at a certain point when you're looking for players to fill out your roster, guys who have some kind of role to play, they get picked. So yeah, all good choices. Uh, let's go to starting pitchers, and again I'll open things up. The best value starting pitcher for me, I looked at Kyle Hendricks of Chicago, but I'm going to give the nod to a guy who really helped my team and taught AL, and that's Rick Porcello of Boston. I got him for eight bucks uh, in that league and mixed out. He went for a dollar right at the end of the draft. And for that paltry investment, 22 wins, ERA around three, a whip right around one, 189 strikeouts, 223 innings, a profit in the mid $20 range. And he's the favorite to win the Cy Young in the American League, and he should win the Cy Young in the American League. I like Rick Porcello as a value play. Uh, Todd, how about you? Well, first of all, I think. Verlander should get the signing on the American League, but that's a story for another day. Um, I have Hendricks and Porcello basically neck and neck, and I'm using my criteria. I don't know if I can give it to Jeremy Hellickson because I don't know that he was drafted in a lot of 15-team leagues, but his his you know plus value was insane. So I will. Uh, I had Hendricks by decimal points over Porcello, so I'll go by that route. But just want to give a hat tip to Hellickson, who just frustrated analysts and DFS players. All season long. I mean, we went from stacking against him to starting him. It, it's just uh, what the job he did with Philadelphia. And I think they're rewarding him by sort of having him as being the mentor of their young staff. And uh, But uh, I'll, I'll give the nod to Hendricks. I was on the Porcello train, too. I'm going to side with Patrick on that. I also have to double back to VR and point out that I'm not going to concede that Todd was driving the bus on VR. At the very, at the very least, we were co-pilots on that. So... 
Um, <laughs> but um, Porcello had the same impact on my teams as VR. Where I owned him, things turned out very well, and it's not hard to figure out with, a, you know, somewhere in the pick from, I think, range from the, like, round 18, around 22 range in mixed leagues to a guy that turned in 22 wins, a three ERA. The thing about him that I kind of want to point out as far as sneaky value is we kind of get obsessed with strikeout rates and we're looking for guys who strike out, you know, a batter an inning or more. Uh, Porcello kind of got to a nice strikeout total in a different way. I think he struck out 190, which is a very, more than respectable total, over 225 or 230 innings pitched. And even though that comes out to a rate below that, you know, probably below even the 8-0 mark. He was such a workhorse, and he was pitching into the seventh inning almost every night and racking up, you know, 225 innings over his 33 starts or whatever it was that even that slightly milder strikeout rate turned into a very nice aggregate strikeout total. So just a quick point that rate stats aren't everything, and sometimes you can overcome a uh, being a tick less on the rate stats if you're durable and taking the ball deeper into the game than the other guys who have the uh, the eye-popping double-digit strikeout rates. I thought that was an interesting point as well, that uh, Rick Porcello's strikeout rate was actually around 7.5 or right around league average, maybe 7.8, something like that, and uh, certainly wasn't anything that would catch your eye, but because he stacked up all those innings, it's a it's an object lesson in how we have to look at all these kind of rate stats. I look at home runs per 650 uh, plate appearances, RBIs, and runs scored if, using that same ratio, and sometimes it can be a little misleading because uh, you know if you're a little behind on the rate but you pile up a way more innings or a way more plate appearances, you can overcome it because it's a counting stat when you come time to issue the trophies. It's not a rate stat unless you're in a league that plays rate stats, which I've always thought was a bad idea. But again, some, uh, a topic for another day. We uh, we talked about relief pitchers earlier. Let's talk about relief pitchers now. Uh, Todd Zola, who did you think was the best value reliever in 2016? Yeah, I'm going to grab someone who I at least was drafted. I mean, there's a bunch of guys you can take out of reserve. But I think that uh, I think Alex Colomay was probably drafted maybe as a placeholder until Brad Boxberger got back, and he pretty much had the job all year and was nails. So I'll give my best value reliever to Alex Colomay. I'm gonna I'm playing some games as far as when you drafted because if you drafted on the weekend of opening day, this guy was established as the closer and looked like he was you know at that point his value and or his draft position shot up. But if you drafted in early or even mid March. The Jays' closer situation was foggy, and Roberto Wasuna even looked like he was behind Drew Storen on the depth chart for a while there until just a couple of days before opening day. So if you were at sort of an, on the early draft side and got to gobble up Asuna as a closer and waiting, you got 35 saves, uh, you know, mid-two ZRA, I think it was, from him, and you know, pretty much elite closer performance for a uh, minimal investment. And there will not be many more opportunities down the road to get Roberto Asuna on the cheap. Mm. I looked at Alex Colomay for the same reasons that uh, that Todd did. I also looked at Seung Hwan Oh of St. Louis, but I decided against him despite a really sterling performance, especially on the strikeout side, and some excellent decimals because not a lot of teams even had him on their rosters. I imagine in NL only, he might have got to reserve lists because the guys are looking for strikeout relievers. But I also went with Roberto Osuna for exactly the same reason. In our draft, because uh, we drafted two weeks before, it was far from clear that Roberto Osuna was going to be the closer. They had brought in Drew Storen from uh, Washington, and all the media coverage said that the, the Jays were committed to Storen as the, uh, as the closer. 
He didn't pitch well. Roberto Osuna, 21 years old, comes in and, and looks like the second coming of uh, Dennis Eckersley. Maybe a bit hyperbolic to say that, but he was very, very good all year. A few stumbles uh, towards the end of the season, certainly, that might have dragged down his value a tick, but uh, I believe that he went for about half of what he was worth in most leagues that drafted early, and for that reason, I'm going to go with uh, Roberto Osuna. Let's move on to end gamers. We're looking for $1.00 type players, round 22, round 23 type players. Uh, pitcher, catcher, I don't care. Ray, who's your best endgame pick? Todd mentioned Roberto, uh, Eduardo Nunez, who's certainly a fine candidate for, for that. Uh, we talked about him even quite a bit on the uh, the midseason awards edition because he was such a headliner in the first half, and he kind of cooled off a little bit after that. I'll go in a different direction here and maybe even a little further down the uh, preseason ranking lists, uh, I've got to talk about Hernan Perez a little bit, Milwaukee, who really, particularly in the second half, just went nuts. Uh, and for a guy who you know, was an end gamer probably in even NL-only leagues because he looked like just a utility guy, uh, he racked up 400 at-bats and put up double-digit double home runs and something like 34, 35 stolen bases. Just an immense value, and most of it was concentrated in the second half. So he was probably a waiver pickup you know, in June, July in most leagues. And I know... Uh, Rob Silver, who knows me out to win the NFBC, got uh, more than a little mileage out of Hernan Perez. So uh, I, this is a grudge I'll be carrying for a while, I think. Thanks, Hernan. Well, of course, uh, in a lot of leagues, uh, Jonathan Villar was a probably endgame fodder, I thought. Uh, I looked at a couple of other guys as well. And uh, I kind of settled on DJ LeMahieu of Colorado because at the start of the season when we were drafting in mid-March, it didn't seem totally clear that he was going to have a real clear path to playing time, but he got lots of playing time and he hung up near $30 worth of value. Uh, I could be wrong about DJ LeMay, whose standings going into the season because I'm not a National League guy, but um, he didn't go for a lot of money and he delivered a lot of money, not as much as VR, but we already talked about VR, so I lean towards DJ LeMay. Uh, Todd, how about you? So what I, did, I went to my I went to my NFPC league and I went to the 23rd round, and the name that just stuck out for me was Jay Hap. That uh, Hap was a a 23rd rounder in a 15 team league, so I think he would qualify for our category here. And I I mean, I, if Hellickson drove me crazy, Hap just drove me goofy because I mean I just did not think Hap was that good of a pitcher. Okay, he did good in Seattle. He didn't did good when he went to the National League. I thought he was going to just just get destroyed in Rogers Center, but he developed a cutter. He just learned how to mix his pitches and command them, and I'm no longer scared of J.A. Happ. And uh, I think he just did a wonderful. Well, I am because I, I, I may see him in the playoffs for, for, you know, against the Red Sox, in which case I'll be scared of him. But I'm just uh, as far as fantasy goes, I'm no longer worried about AL East and Rogers Center, whatever. I mean, he's not my first or second starting pitcher in a mixed league, but I'm not shying away from him anymore either. I'm giving a pass to all the guys who got hurt like A.J. Pollock and Matt Harvey and Giancarlo Stanton, although in Stanton's case you should be a little more uh, dubious because of the injury risk. He went for 39 bucks, believe it or not. I'll be curious to see where you guys slot him when we talk about 2017. I also looked at Andrew McCutcheon, who disappointed his owners, but my elite bust of the season is Bryce Harper of the Washington Nationals. He was part of a heated debate preseason about who should be the first overall pick, Harper or Trout, and he went for almost 50 bucks in Tout Mixed. He returned dollar value, not even 20 bucks. 21 stolen bases were pretty good and pretty much in line with uh, what we expected, but only 24 home runs. His batting average was under 250, way off the bottom of the charts. Didn't get to triple digits in runs or RBIs. 
I'm going to say, uh, I said earlier, anyone who had VR or Rick Porcello probably did pretty well. I bet anyone who had uh, Bryce Harper had trouble competing for a fantasy pennant in 2016. Yeah, no, I agree, Patrick, with the in concept. I think he didn't make my list because I think the steals gave him just enough that I don't think he was a complete bust. Uh, I mean, the batting average was just killer. But um, I'm trying to choose between Byung-Ho Park and Jose Batista for my uh, early round bust. I maybe was higher on Park than some, so that may be a personal bust. So I'll give it to Jose Batista. And I think a little bit of that is what I kind of talked about earlier in that not everybody on Toronto was going to get what they got last year. And he, he was sort of the, the one that really, of the, of, the, of the top guys, I mean, Donaldson did fine and, and Encarnacion did fine. Uh, Batista did not live up to what the uh, some expected from him. So he's going to be my worst value hitter. You skimmed uh, Giancarlo Stanton, and while we're giving mostly injury passes here to guys who are banged up, I, th- I don't think Stanton gets sort of off the hot plate for his injury at the end of the year because he had already sunk his value long before he got hurt. And I think there's really got to be a conversation this offseason about what we really think Giancarlo Stanton is, even when he's healthy, because you know in the first half or in the first two-thirds of the season, before you know any of these – before he got shelved with the injury, you know, he hit 219 with 15 homers in the first half. And then, you know, not much more pace wise before he got hurt in August. So in terms of first round value, even if Stanton hadn't gotten on the DL and just kept doing what he was doing for the entire season, that's well short of a first round valuation there. So I've got to call him my elite bust because the injury was really just, you know, the uh, cherry on the Sunday of uh, underperformance. Yeah, it was a terrible year, and and it was a terrible year, even notwithstanding allowing for the injury. Let's move on to the starting pitchers. Uh, the worst value starting pitcher, Todd. Uh, who did you pick? See, this is so tough because the sort of, I mean, you know, some of these guys were were poor and were hurt. So kind of like with Stanton and Harper, you kind of have to figure out what they would have done in healthy. I'm gonna uh, Garrett Cole's the guy I'm gonna choose. And a lot of it has to do with he just became a, a mundane strikeout pitcher. And I know we talked a little bit about Porcello, about how he can pump up the strikeouts. But Cole wasn't even going that deep into games. So, and I know some of this is injury. But from what people expected from Garrett Cole, um, I'm giving him as my worst value starting pitcher. Yeah, there's a good case to be made there. But from, from the category of guys who seem to be completely healthy, and at least until the very end of the season, i got to go with... Uh, 2015 AL Cy Young Award winner Dallas Keuchel, who just came out of the gates really struggling and, you know, a couple of times looked like it might be turning the corner a little bit. I traded for him in one of the experts leagues in like June thinking that I was a buy low opportunity and he kind of went from just terrible to mediocre and treaded water at that level until he got shut down at the end of the year. Uh, He wasn't a guy that, you know, obviously the 2015 season was a bit of a you know, positive outlier for him. So I don't think we necessarily thought he was going to stay quite at that level. But the the magnitude of the fall here, absent a you know clear injury indicator, was really pretty striking to me. So I'll go with Keuchel. I looked at Dallas Keuchel too because they had a fairly high price tag in most of the leagues I checked. But he did produce a little bit of positive value, which is something that I can't say about the guys I did pick. But before I get there, Ray, I'm curious what you think about Dallas Keuchel, who goes from 
a Cy Young year in 2015 to being one of the worst pitchers in baseball, fantasy-wise especially, in 2016. When you're thinking about a pitcher like this, and Todd, you can talk about this too, you're, look, you're looking at a guy who goes from, really from the peak to the, to the valley, from the penthouse to the outhouse. How do you value him for next year? Yeah, it's hard, and that's what we spend in a, at HQ. That's what we spend in a bunch of October and November doing as we write the baseball forecaster, just without even looking at Keiko's skill skill profile in general. I think you know it's the old adage that he's probably not as good as he looked in 2015 and not as bad as he looked this year. Uh, you know, we'll look at the underlying skills, and usually those will tell you that what I just said is true, and that the truth that you know the truth is that these seasons weren't terribly far apart, or you can at least identify a couple of indicators that are going to be the difference between going well and going poorly. Keiko was always a guy who, you know, even in 2014 and 15 was out pitching his skills a little bit. So I don't think anybody really thought he was, you know, th- that guy, you know, like you said, he had some high valuations and some high picks, but nobody thought this was a quite a Kershaw Scherzer kind of guy, right? It was sort of the next tier down. Uh, so we got to reevaluate that too and see where he falls this winter. But, uh, you know, Gravity pulls everything to the center in these cases is kind of the uh, the off the cuff answer. Well, you know, part of what we did in first pitch uh, first pitch tour in the spring, Keiko came up a couple times with some you know yellow flags, and one of them was his walk rate. I mean, we don't we talk about strikeout rate and swing the strike rate. You guys have the metric at HQ with a ball base base um, you know ball percentage relating to walks, and he came up as a red flag in that. His walk rate last year, or you know, 2015, was a little bit lucky. See, I was I wasn't on the Keiko bandwagon to begin with. Add that into it, and that sort of tipped it to me where I just, you know, I, I you know, what it, I, you know, I hate to say nothing to do with him because it's always a price. But where he was going, it's like the second starting pitcher in a in a mixed league. I wanted nothing to do with him at that price. So I think it was it was, it was a pretty good pretty good call on HQ's part to warn about the walk rate because sure enough. He walked more people this year, and that has a domino effect. If Again, he doesn't have that huge strikeout rate. So if you're walking guys, you're not going as deep into games. You've got base runners on. You're going from the the uh, you're going from the stretch and not the windup, and you're just not as effective as a pitcher. So I think that, uh, you know, I think 2015 was the peak. And if there's someone out there who still believes in, in Keiko, I'm, I'm not going to get him. But if he, you know, if he falls to me as the fourth starting pitcher, sure, I'll, I'll grab him and and hope he, you know, hope we, you know that he refines the touch or whatever and isn't so bad anymore. But um, yeah, I, I agree that um, I think you know, I don't so much agree. I think that you guys are spot on uh, identifying him as someone to be careful of this season. Yeah, he kind of uh, underpitched his skills this year, overpitched them last year. And I'm I'm always wondering whether I should be looking at a guy and saying I should split the difference. Should I believe the high? Should I believe the low? It's a very tough call to make, and it's so individualized. You have to really look at each pitcher as a separate guy. Back to this idea of worst value, I looked at at several pitchers. I discounted the injury guys, and I came up with pretty much a dead tie, James Shields and Shelby Miller. They both went for eight bucks in tout mixed, and they both were minus eighteen dollars producers. So they both lost net twenty six bucks, and uh, that's a, that's a killer. We we all know that they had ERAs around six. Expected ERAs were both over five. Their WHIPs were both around one point six. Their DOM rates under seven strikeouts per nine. I said earlier that certain players uh, help their teams win, and I think anybody who had a Shelby Miller or James Shields probably struggled to, to succeed in uh, fantasy baseball in 2016. So let's uh, finish up this segment by looking at the worst value relief pitcher, few candidates here, Ray. 
Yeah, I, I've got a sort of an abject lesson here. So I, there are a bunch of candidates, and I picked Jonathan Pabelbon because, well, I wanted to talk about Jonathan Pabelbon. So, you know, his ERA ended up over four. He only had 19 saves in sort of a half season in the closer role before he imploded so badly in July that Washington had to go out and get Mark Melanson and throw Papelbon to the curb. And sort of the abject lesson there is it was no surprise coming into the season that Papelbon was in his decline phase. You could see it in his velocity. You could see it in his skill, overall skills decline in sort of a straight line. But I think the point that bears noting here is that once you see a reliever on that part of the career bell curve essentially he's just a hot potato he could go off at any go off in your hands at any time and you know there's not really a concept of a pitcher a reliever in particular having sort of a gentle fade like the, you know where they you know keep going uh, you know w- with you know just gradually decaying results and still tolerable ratios and save numbers being accumulated. No, it's once the decline starts, it just tends to only get going faster, and it's just a matter of time until you get the explosion. So that's my little Papelbon spiel. I just feel grateful I've never had a potato go off in my hand. It sounds horrible. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I looked at Papelbon. I also looked at Sean Tolleson and Houston Street, guys like this who who were drafted. But for me, the prize goes to St. Louis reliever Trevor Rosenthal. He was a $19 pick in tout mixed uh, and a minus $6 disaster. So he lost that owner 25 bucks. I don't imagine that owner was alone in that. He got 14 saves. Finally, the Cardinals had enough, and he was replaced. And little wonder, he was walking six and a half guys per nine innings. And that's just not closer with you guys. It's unrosterable because it creates a huge whip problem, a category killer at 191 for uh, for uh, Trevor Rosenthal in very limited innings. So he's really killing uh, killing that category. Uh, Todd, who's your worst value reliever? I'll make it short and sweet. I, it was Trevor Rosenthal and the rest. For for you know for the reasons Patrick mentioned. Plus for me, he was sort of in that next tier. I don't want Jansen. I don't want well not so much. Don't want. I'm not going to go take the number one guy. You know he was in that next tier of guys that I'd be willing to take. And you know if you happened upon him instead of I don't know AJ Ramos or 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 Robertson or something like that, your season was not so much season was sunk because you can always fix a reliever, but it was certainly damaged. So yeah, Rosenthal. For me, this this may have been the easiest call and everything we're going to talk about. Okay, so that uh, covers up our value players. Our segment two is over and a uh, pretty interesting discussion. I, I noticed that we agree some places, we disagree in others, which is all what makes it baseball. When we come back, we'll go to 2017. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. 
Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and ESPN and Rotowire, and Ray Murphy, the co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com. And guys, uh, I think we've had a pretty good discussion about what went on in 2016, but our listeners are probably quite curious what we think is going to happen as we look ahead to 2017. And let's start with a bit of a, uh, what do they call it, a thought exercise about uh, the 2017 draft. Let's say you're drafting this weekend, and they've already told you you're guaranteed a top-five pick. Who are your top five picks for 2017? And we'll start with Todd Zola. Hey, Patrick and Ray, I can do you one better. I actually started a draft last weekend, and I had the number one pick. This is a real draft that the NFBC does. Uh, we traditionally start at the last weekend of the season, and I had the number one pick. I'm actually doing it with our colleague, Derek Van Riper. And we took Mike Trout, number one. We, we, we both agreed on it. It was just the consistency and reliability that you get from Trout year after year after year. Betts and Altuve were our two and three, and if I draft the second, I may take one. If I draft ten seconds later, I may take the other. I just, I just really don't know. It, to me, if I really feel Altuve steals, will bounce back. And you know what? There's no reason why they won't. I would probably lean towards Altuve. So I'll say Altuve bets. And at, at this point, right now, as we speak, I have no reason to believe that Clayton Kershaw's injury will influence anything that happens next season. So I, I, I had him at the number four pick in labor, and I worked out pretty well for me. So I would probably take him number four again. I would take the other three hitters before, but I think you can build a winning team around Kershaw, and I'm not worried about the injury. And I alluded to it before with Paul Goldschmidt finishing number five this year. That, that whole consistency element, you know what, he'll probably get fewer steals next year, but he may get a couple extra homers. Uh, you know, in the old bank on it, I'll take Paul Goldschmidt over some sexier names that you guys may say in a minute at, at number five. Okay, so for Todd Zola, it's Trout, Altuve, Betts, Kershaw, and Goldschmidt. Ray Murphy, uh, you're picking first through fifth. Who are you going to pick? I'll agree with four of Todd's. Uh, the only one I'll leave out is Kershaw, just because I'm a little more concerned about the durability. But I will take all of Trout, Betts, Altuve, and Goldschmidt in the top five every time. Uh, for the fifth, I think I'll throw Chris Bryant into the mix. Uh, I'm kind of thinking that we haven't quite seen his best work yet, as good as he's been, and that there might be another level next year, whether it's, you know, hitting, you know, something north of 40 homers or maybe introducing a little more of the stolen base game again. But I think that's a pick that I would throw into the uh, top five mix as well. So Bryant over Kershaw for me. I'm going to say Mike Trout first in an on-base league, third. Otherwise, I'll go with Betts and Altuve, more or less that order. Uh, I'm a big believer in using the cheat sheet from year one to go to year two, and unless you convince me of some reason not to, then I, I try to stick with that fairly closely. Uh, I had Clayton Kershaw at four, and boy, I'll tell you what, as a philosophical thing, I could see you going higher. Last year, he had 21 starts and earned $31. That's $1.50 per start. So if he gets his usual 34, 35 starts, he's the only player in all of fantasy baseball who's going to possibly go over 50 bucks. Give him just 24 starts again. He's still more valuable than any player in baseball outside of Betts, Altuve, and Trout. So I think he's a absolutely safe pick in the fourth slot unless he just crashes and burns injury-wise, but you could say the same thing about any player. My number five pick, I looked at all the usual suspects, Bryant, uh, Nolan Arenado, I thought deserved a look, but here's a reach. I'm I like Jonathan VR in this spot, and I'm going to bet he goes quite a bit lower, maybe even the second round, but here's my point. He was the top base stealer in baseball. He's only 25 years old, and he's over 80% success rate, or right around there towards the end. 
He's on a running team that has trouble scoring runs, so chances are he's going to keep running. Now let's think about what we know, and Todd alluded to this earlier. The number of stolen bases is declining fairly quickly, and the distribution of stolen bases toward the top guys is increasing. So in 2016, it took about 160 stolen bases to win the category. So if VR is close to repeating 60 stolen bases, he's going to get more than a third of the bags that, uh, of the bags that a team needs to take 15 points. It took 330 home runs to win that category in mixed, and it's easier to find home runs. To get as big a home run contribution from one player means you have to find a guy who's going to hit 100 home runs. And VR, as we discussed, no Billy Hamilton, stolen bases empty otherwise. VR's other offensive stats compare pretty favorably to Ricky Henderson, Joe Morgan, peak Jose Reyes, Eric Davis. I think uh, Jonathan VR may have established a, a, a new pecking order in fantasy baseball. He's one of those guys where, you know, are we coming down to where our valuations rank the guy or where we would take the guy or where we think we have to take the guy? Um, I agree in theory, but, you know, if I'm taking, if I have, a, you know, the number five pick, you know, I, I may push the button and say, you know what, I, maybe I'll try to get VR in the second round. To me, it's as, it's as much of a, a, a team construct thing. I don't see him hitting 20 home runs again. So I don't think he's going to hit five, but I don't know that he'll get 20 again. I think I can. I think I can still build a winning team without VR and uh, taking him fifth overall. I think I can piece together steals a little bit later. So for me, I I, I understand what. I, and this is kind of what I felt about AJ Pollock this past season. Was I think I had him fourth, fifth, or sixth overall. But if I had that pick, I wouldn't take him. I would try to hope that he comes to me in the second round. And if he didn't, oh well. Uh, so it's just. Uh, in a vacuum, I think you're right. Game theory-wise, I don't know if I would take him fifth. But uh, and I thought of that. But but here's here was my problem. The the uh, thought exercise says I'm going to pick first through fifth, which means if I wait till the second round, I have to wait till the last five picks in the second round, and I'm pretty sure that he's not going to last that long. So the question to me becomes: Do you take him fifth, or do you miss him altogether? And of course, you can be comfortable either way, but. Uh, when I look at who's likely to go in the second round, I just don't see VR falling all the way down to 26 through 30. I just have a hard time taking, taking a guy in the top five who's only done it once. So I'm sure he, his ADP will settle in at least the back end half of the first round, and that's kind of a different conversation. But I, you know, as much as I enjoyed his work this year, I just don't think I could get behind a top five pick. If in this draft that I'm doing, Patrick, now again, it's one draft, yada yada yada. If you had the fourth or fifth pick, you would have been able to get VR in the second round. He went, he went uh, to the team that drafted that drafted fourth, so he would have been available to it fifth uh, in the second round or the with the with you know with the tenth, eleventh pick, and then the twelfth pick. So who knows? I, 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 you know, he's one of those guys. The beauty of this draft is we're drafting blind. You know, we all want to, we don't want to follow the ADP, but we do want to know where the market puts people. And he's one of those guys you really like to know where the market's going to put. So, um, and, I, and I, and actually, I had this discussion with with Derek DVR. If he's available for us at the turn, would we take him there? And Derek lives in Madison. He lives in the Milwaukee area. And I said, you know, to me, is does he have a job? And DVR said, yeah, he, he's going to play. And I thought he was too, but he lives in the area, so why not ask? And he, you know. Yeah, he's going to be playing regularly. There's just no one. Will Middlebrooks is not going to knock him off third base. He will find a spot somewhere. So, you know, pencil in the at-bats. And, 
Yeah, that's going to be tough. You know, you know, the obvious follow-up question to me is, okay, it wouldn't take him fifth. When would you take him? It would be soon thereafter. It wouldn't be very many picks later that I that I jump in. But um, yeah, fifth fifth is high. Good discussion, you guys. Okay, let's talk about the. Who's going to return some pretty high-round performance without costing a player a high-round price tag or dollar value? Uh, let's start with the hitters. And Ray Murphy, who's a hitter you think is likely to get top-round performance without the top-round price? Uh, one guy who I'm interested in taking a deep dive on this winter to try to figure out is Xander Bogarts from up here in Boston. Uh, you know, has not quite reached the first-round level yet uh, by – uh, dollar values, he's probably somewhere in the you know, mid-20s for the line he put up this year. But he's just 23. He's proven to be durable. He's flashed a wide variety of skill sets. We've seen uh, good batting average. We've seen some power. We've seen some speed. I'm not 100% sure what the shape of his growth looks like from here, but it seems to me like he's got a lot of avenues to either spike the homers, spike the stolen bases, put up a 320 batting average, maybe a couple of those, and that's a scenario where you know you start talking about somebody who might have a, a first-round valuation 12 months from now. I'm going to reach a little next year for Texas second baseman Rugnetto Dorr. 33 home runs this year. He was high 80s in the RBI and runs categories. Had a decent number of bags, I think 14 or 15. He needs to draw more walks, but he's just 22, so I think he has room to figure that out as he gets a little more experience. But the guy I really like for next year is Trey Turner, the shortstop in Washington. The Nationals played the slow game with Turner, called him up late, played him a little bit less than they might have, just over 300 at-bats. He's only 23. He could use more patience as well. But he had 20 home runs and 33 bags and a 340 batting average in just those 300 at-bats. The average is clearly going to come down, I think. But if we just double his counting stats, you're looking at maybe a 300 batting average, 25 to 30 home runs, 100 runs scored, 60 bags, 80 RBIs. Trey Turner created as much fantasy value as Mark Trumbo in half the at-bats. I think he could be next year's Jonathan VR with a little more home run pop. I mean, just just to give you guys, Patrick a little idea, Turner is all, could already be a first rounder. He's already thought of that highly. He went on the turn in this league that I'm talking about, so uh, he was a second rounder. So technically, he and as was Bogarts. But um, the guy that I'm gonna choose, and it and it, it's actually the answer to why wouldn't I draft VR number five, or one of the reasons at least in theory, and that's Jose Peraza. And, uh, you know, people are probably laughing because I know he's, he's kind of one of my guys. I talk about him a lot. Um, but if, if Peraza plays a full season and he, I don't know if he takes over the Billy Hamilton role or plays along with it, we're looking at other, you know, 60, 65 steals. He's not going to get the home runs that VR got. Uh, but if he hits at the top of the order, he's going to score runs and he's going to get some RBIs. He had as many runs, he had as many RBIs as he had runs this year, which I found a little bit. Uh, curious, 25 RBIs and 25 runs. So give uh, give Peraza a full year, and heck, he may hit 70 steals. I don't know, but um, and the, you know the reason being, you know, I don't have to take VR fifth because if I want to get a bunch of steals, I can wait and get Jose Peraza later, who also has outfield eligibility, which it's going to become important. You know, people, why you know, wouldn't you rather have a, a second baseman or shortstop? The middle infield is stacked. So to actually be able to take Peraza and three other middle infielders, you know, it, it's not a bad thing. So uh, that there's where I'm going. You can keep talking about Peraza, Todd. One of these years you'll be right. I was half right this year. I mean, it wasn't, you know, he helped me with the tout title this year. So 
we're good. Okay, then let's move on to the pitcher most likely to return high-round performance without the high-round price tag. And I took a long look at Washington's Tanner Rourke because, as you guys know, uh, I like looking at Ryan quality starts. That's seven innings, three earned runs, rather than the ordinary quality start of six innings. He had more than uh, more Ryan quality starts than almost everybody in baseball, except for Kershaw, Sale, Scherzer, and Verlander as a percentage of total starts. I also looked at Rick Porcello, of course. I bet he doesn't fetch top dollar, and I believe he can repeat his season. But the vote I'm going to give is to Kansas City left-hander Danny Duffy, who had tremendous skills as a starter after opening the year in the bullpen. Had a strikeout rate a little over one per inning, command rate of 4.5 strikeouts per walks. These are excellent numbers, and I think his 350 ERA, 110 whip could get better. He could flirt with 200 strikeouts. I know that home runs were an issue in 2016. He had a fly ball tilt, uh, slightly lower than usual infield fly ball rate, and a 14% home run per fly ball rate. All of those things, not so good. But what I did, guys, was I filtered all of 2016's starting pitchers for a dominance greater than nine strikeouts, a command ratio above four strikeouts per walks, and an opposition on base percentage under 300. Danny Duffy was on that list, along with Bumgarner, Carrasco, Kershaw, Kluber, Sale, Scherzer, and Syndergaard. Good company. Yeah, it sure is. Who's your man, Todd? To me, if a pitcher's going to end up in the top, and we're, if we're, you know, we're talking towards the top he needs to strike guys out it may not make him a better pitcher but at least for fantasy purposes he needs to get strikeout guys or as we talked about just drum up the innings that a Priscillo did and uh you know you mentioned the, the Ryan quality starts Rook did too Rook I don't think he was a 220 inning guy but he certainly you know he wasn't 160 either but having said that uh I'm gonna go with Julio Terran and you know, people, six, seven, eight wins, whatever he had this year. I know it was a poor team Atlanta. It was silly low. But uh, he uh, around an eight strikeout per nine is, is is in that range where it's good enough for me to, that he when he gets the innings, he should be fine. And he's at a point of his career where 200 innings shouldn't be an issue. And I don't want to call it a dirty little secret, but uh, I don't think a lot of people noticed that the Braves, since the All-Star break, had the fourth or fifth offense in the league as far as runs scored goes. And who knows if this will carry over next year. But they're not the uh, – they, they scored some runs. So I think he'll get better run support next year. I don't know about the new park, how it will play, all that kind of stuff. But uh, to me, he has the combination of innings, strikeouts, and enough wins that he'll be able to get to the, to the level we're talking about. You, I'm going to go with one of the other guys you mentioned, Patrick, and that's uh, Carlos Carrasco. Uh, in some sense, the unfortunate uh, line drive off his hand at the end of the season a couple of weeks early here uh, might be a might be a break, quote unquote, for people who want to get him undervalued in 2017. You know, he had a couple of you know non mechanical arm injuries this year. You know, he has the broken hand or wrist or whatever it is now, and he missed a month of May with a hamstring injury. But in between, he was terrific. Uh, the skills really just seem to be consolidating, and this is a guy who's got the what looks to be the ace pedigree with the only hurdle that he hasn't cracked the 200-inning mark yet. And I think he's well-positioned next year to finally come out and throw 200 innings and hang up you know, 18 wins you know, a sub three ERA and 200 strikeouts. And that's uh, because of the low winning total this year and because of uh, the kind of perception that he's injury prone, which I think is just a bit of bad luck. If he can avoid line drives back up the middle, I think there's a, there's a good chance that he you know jumps into a, a you know, position of something like a top five starting pitcher next year. All right, hypothetically, Ray, if you were in an NFBC league that already started drafting, 
and your first three picks from Mike Trout, Francisco Lindor, and George Springer. Would you be okay with Carlos Carrasco as your first starting pitcher in the fourth round? Absolutely. Well, <laughs> well, we need to wait through one more pick, but that's who. That's who we have. No, I agree with Ray 100%. Dave and I and I have been sweating out Carrasco this whole round, and uh, especially because injuries are more fluky than they are, you know, with with Strasburg or or even Syndergaard. I think you, I think uh, this is this is the time for for Carrasco. And I think you guys both make excellent points about the injuries. We tend to look at pitcher injuries as disqualifying when you need to be a little more nuanced about what kind of injury it is. Uh, Noah Syndergaard, to me, is a huge red flag because he's had these uh, repeated elbow problems and forearm tightness problems and so forth. But Carlos Carrasco's injuries are not like that. They're just they're just fluky kind of non-mechanical injuries, as Ray alluded to. And I think there's a qualitative difference that a smart fantasy owner is going to look at and take advantage of. Uh, let's go on to the uh, guys who are likely to bust on us next year. A high-round hitter, most likely not to return high-round performance. And we'll start with Todd Zola. I got this guy in a keeper league, so I hesitate to say it, but Brian Dozier. Um, I mean, when? Where, where did those, you know... He's a guy that in some of the shallower 10- and 12-team mixed leagues, I'm sure you guys answered questions too, about people wanting to drop him midseason. And if, if they did not heed our advice, because I assume you guys said don't drop him, that someone out in their league picked that guy up and he just went goofy. And he's a good player. You know, He's always a 5th, 6th, 7th rounder. I don't think that this is going to sustain in the, in the first round. Um, so uh, I enjoy watching him play. He's a favorite just to watch play. Like I said, I have him in the keeper league. But it would shock me, and Dozier will go in the first round. I can, I can pretty much assure you that, uh, with, based on this season, there's so enough people out there that it, what you alluded to, Patrick, as far as drafting off of last year's list is better than off of this year's list. Enough people are going to draft him off of this year's list that uh, I just, you know, to me, he's the same guy he was before this season that just ran into some homers. I don't know how much the uh, the warm weather in Minnesota did with it because the ball travels and. You know, if it gets hotter in Texas, who cares? But if it gets hotter in Minnesota, it matters. That's something I want to look into. But I can't see that number of home runs again. That was going to be my guy too. I uh, I agree with you. I actually think you know, in his mild defense, you know, he also besides the home run spike, he also bumped up his batting average by thirty points, and that's supported by the skills in the sense that we always thought he was more of a 250, 260 hitter than the 230 hitter he showed last year. But let's face it, you're not buying Brian Dozier for the batting average. You're buying him for the homers. And I can't see 42 again. And even if he holds the batting average gains and the homers fall back from 42 to, you know, the upper 20s, which is where he lived before this, you know, that's not a first-round value either. And when I, you know, if you say that's where you think he's going to be going next year, I'm going to want no part of that. Yeah, I like Dozier as a candidate for this uh, this uh, consideration as well. It doesn't look like a repeatable home run performance. But my guy is going to be Manny Machado of Baltimore. I think he's probably going to go in the second round. Todd, you can tell me uh, if he where where did he go so far in your NFBC that you're undertaking right now? He went seventh. And I mean, I don't want to run in your parade, but um, you know, for a guy that didn't even attempt a stolen base, that's pretty high. Yeah, and that's that's exactly my point. Uh, to be worthy of a first round pick, I think he has to steal some bases. And be, the Orioles, never mind Machado, the Orioles as right. a team only attempted thirty two steals, and some of those were probably missed hit and runs. It's by far the lowest total of stolen base attempts and stolen bases in the free agent era since nineteen seventy six. The team leader was Joy Rickard with four stolen bases. Machado had 20 stolen bases once before. I think that's an outlier. His other seasons were like. 
like six home, six stolen bases, four stolen bases, none this year, as we mentioned. It just looks to me like the Orioles have made a commitment to not running, and that means Machado's value has a hard cap because of zero stolen bases, and that hard cap is way short of 30 bucks, and that means it's way short of first-round value. Add in a little bit of injury risk. He's had some surgically repaired knees. I think Machado should be priced maybe in the middle of the third round or the early fourth round. I don't see him as a first-round or second-round player, but I bet that's where he goes an awful lot. Uh, let's go on to the pitchers. Uh, Ray, let's start with you. Who's likely to be a pitcher not returning high-round performance for high-round pay? You know, I was looking around for a guy who might enter 2017 living on reputation rather than uh, you know hard skills a little bit, and I came across Jake Arrieta, who I think might fit that bill. You know, he certainly didn't have a bad year this year by any measure, but he did seem to run out of gas a little bit in the second half. Uh, you know, his skills were actually pretty average, and average is a long way from what he had been for the last year and a half or two years. And maybe it's just a, you know, workload catching up with him, and he needs an offseason to recharge. But, you know, if you consider him pitching maybe deep into October and carrying that workload a little further this year, I think this might be a case where I'm going to shy away from the guy next year uh, just because I think people are going to be looking at the reputation and, you know, a lot of buzz about the Cubs and how many wins he'll get, blah, 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 because the Cubs are still going to be an elite team, of course. But there might be a little less here than meets the eye. Maybe he bounces back and gets back to what he was in the first half and what he was in 2015. But the second half, I think, is enough of a red flag for me that I'm going to let somebody else, you know, sort of place that bet. I took a long look at Jake Arrieta as well, but, you know, I was looking at this package of three pitchers, Michael Fulmer, Jay Happ, and Aaron Sanchez, and Aaron Sanchez and Jay Happ uh, were close to $20 in value. Fulmer was more like $13 pitching for Detroit. They were all three-ish ERAs, one teen whips. Uh, all of them had exactly 7.5 strikeouts per nine for dominance, so they were pretty identical pitchers. Of course, the big difference here was wins, and I don't think chasing wins is a, is a sound idea. I don't think Jay Happ and Aaron Sanchez are as likely to amass the number of wins next year as they did this year because of what Todd said earlier. There's going to be um, some problems offensively in Toronto. Uh, Edwin Encarnacion's a free agent. Bautista's a free agent with one foot out the door already after this bad season, and he's insisting on getting a $35 million a year multi-year contract, and Toronto's not going to pay that, I don't think. So all of a sudden you go from a very offensively powerful team to one that has some problems in that area. I think Sanchez, because he's younger, has a chance, a better chance than Hap to, to stay really good. But Sanchez has big workload issues. They were going to stop him pitching. And then when they got back in the race or realized they needed him, they just kept pitching him. He's at 192 innings now. There's going to be playoffs beyond this, uh, if presuming they win the play-in game. And so now all of a sudden you're talking about at least 100 innings more than last year at all levels. If the Jays make any kind of playoff run, I think he's going to have a big workload issue next year because he's relatively still relatively young, a little pre-peak. And uh, I don't know, Jay Happ, Aaron Sanchez, both I think could be overpriced next year, shall we say. Todd, who are your guys? I've got um, Arietta as well. I'm trying to think if I should. Um, well, I'm gonna I'll say a little bit on Arietta, but I mentioned his name before, Verlander, and it's 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 one of those things where. It's I, I you know we don't like to talk about gut feel but it's almost as much of a gut feel, and the thing being you know if, if he's on the board when I'm taking it, I think there's going to be someone that wants to take him higher than me and I could be wrong about that I could be making a big mistake, but I mean the guy I just 
what he did was fantastic. He had a few more uh, rough outings than he would have had in previous seasons, but he, you know, it's just another 200 innings on an arm that has thrown a ton of innings already. But the thing with Arietta, and you know, getting into the analytics a little bit, his walk rate was was just much higher than it, than it should have been. He's carrying uh, a batting average in balls in play, and, and so is so is Sanchez and a couple other guys. That is just, I mean, even if you even if we want to make the argument, and I think we you know we can make an argument that the pitcher has some control over the the batting average in balls in play, it his is just goofy low. It just can't stay that low. And I you know we we are and this is what I kind of uh, I think we were talking off air about this. This is the next level of analysis with 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 the stat cast and that sort of thing. Is, is how much of this he can sustain. And I know that the Cubs have a heck of a defense, too. But if, if, you know, if, if he doesn't improve the walks and the, uh, the hits start falling a little bit higher rate, I mean, he's just not an, just another guy, but he doesn't carry the strikeouts to make him elite. So sort of a general thing about pitching this year, I kind of alluded to it before with the Heat in Minnesota. I think, you know, if home runs don't, if they fall, if they don't continue at the pace, and this is a this wasn't just like a a, a record pace over the steroid era, steroid era. This is a record pace pace in the history of baseball. If whatever made home runs go goofy like they did this year, if that's not the case next year, it's not going to affect all pitchers equally. So I think one of the toughest things we're going to have to do when we're looking for pitchers like this is which of these pitchers 2016 was hurt the most by this spike in strikeouts. And, you know, they're going to get better next year, you know, in a bigger way than someone who didn't get his hurt with strikeouts So uh, with, with home runs. So I think it's going to be sort of an interesting dynamic when we're talking about pitchers in general. How do we feel the home runs will fall next year? And I think the key to that is going to be to watch the business press or, or the business of sport type uh, media websites and uh, keep your eyes peeled for any change in the manufacturing of baseballs because uh, there's I, I'm fairly convinced by the evidence that it's a baseball issue, not a steroids or PEDs issue. They changed the manufacturing process of the baseballs right around the All-Star break last year, and boom, right away, home runs started really flying out of the yard. I think that's still the case. I was watching the other night, Dustin Pedroia reached for an outside pitch. <laughs> it was six inches off the plate and about two inches off the ground, and he hit it out for a grand slam. And it was like he barely got the got the bat on it, and all of a sudden the ball's just flying out in that way. And as we've talked about earlier, the 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 distribution of home runs is more interesting than the total. You're just getting a lot more guys hitting 30 home runs than we're used to, a lot more guys hitting 20 home runs than we're used to. So home runs becomes easier to find and when you're rostering them than they used to be, and I think that's important. And guys who can get the ball on the ground as pitchers probably are uh, probably are going to benefit uh, disproportionately. Ray, do you have a comment on this? I think you guys had it pretty much covered. Then let's move on to our last categories, our sleepers. A 2016 young player who might be overlooked or undervalued in 2017, but could be a good sleeper. And let's start this one with uh, my choice. Andrew Benintendi of Boston was a little bit lost in the glare of that powerhouse Red Sox team. He just had about 100 at-bats. He was hurt for a while, a couple of home runs, 14 RBI, 16 runs, and he was down at the bottom of the order. But he also had 11 doubles and a triple, and if you prorate 14 extra base hits in 100 at-bats to 600 at-bats, 
You get 84 extra base hits. Nolan Arenado had 82. Andrew Benintendi can hit, and he's young. And as he matures, as we know, doubles often become home runs. And I'm not going to say it's going to happen in 2017. I know there's an injury risk here, and I know I'm talking to two guys in Boston, Red Sox fans, but I like Andrew Benintendi for 2017, and I really like him in Keeper League formats. Uh, Todd, you're next. Yeah, with the caveat that you know prospects aren't in the top of my things that I know very well. Um, I'm, I'm going to go with sort of almost a game theory approach to this question in that you know, no one's going to be drafting J.P. Crawford because middle infield is so deep. But he's a guy you can put on reserve, and I don't know that he'll have a Trey Turner uh, type of uh, uh, impact or even or even Arcia or, or, or Tim Anderson. But that's sort of what I'd be looking for. So I think that the, the cost to put J.P. Crawford on your reserve in deep leagues is going to be nothing, and he might be a guy. And I, I, I think you know Freddie Galvis played well enough that I think maybe they can keep Turner down. I'm sorry, keep um, Crawford down for a little bit. But I do think he'll make an appearance next year, and could give you that boost like we're talking the Turners and the Andersons and the Arcia did at a position where, you know, if you don't get one of the top guys, maybe you're going to need that little bit of help later on. Ray, who's a sleeper hitter for you? I'm going to go with uh, Manny Marjot in San Diego. I was kind of disappointed, as were I know, I know a number of other uh, Baseball HQ forum members, that the uh, San Diego AAA team made a deep postseason run in the AAA playoffs and kept Marjot away from San Diego until just the last 10 days of the season or so. Uh, that might actually be one of those good things that kind of suppresses awareness of him if he had come up for the entire month and had a big month. People might have gotten a little more dialed in on him, but I fully expect him to be in center field and leading off for San Diego come opening day next year, and I am excited by what he can do in that you know high on-base percentage leadoff hitter, you know sort of Adam Eaton with better wheels, kind of what I kind of project him as in my own head. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him take over there. Good picks all. Uh, let's close this out with a sleeper pitcher prospect. And Todd Zola, lead us off. Who's a young, unheralded pitcher who might make a splash? Well, he was heralded, and then he had a terrible season. But I'm not giving up on Jose Barrios yet. So I, you know, people may be looking for a guy in the minors. I, people will be turned off of Barrios. I think give him... You know, he got, he, you know, with eight ERA and he had a, a one eight seven WHIP, which is probably higher than Kershaw's ERA. Uh, so, but I think with an off season to sort of digest, get a year older, uh, go into spring training knowing, I, I hope he has the job anyway. I think we could see the Jose Barrios that we thought we would see coming into the season. And Todd, aren't you encouraged that the Twins are making some changes in their front office and maybe finally abandoning this policy of uh, let's take all our best prospects and jerk them around and run them up into the majors, then if they do anything slightly wrong, run them back down like uh, like Byron Buxton and before him Hicks was on that same kind of yo-yo. you got to let these guys figure it out. You're, if you you got good young prospects and you're going nowhere, you might as well see and get get them experienced. Maybe that'll help. Yeah, well, I mean, he only threw, only threw 58 innings, so but he had part of that was because he was taken out of game so early. So, given the guy 14 starts, I think I think they did give him what half a season's worth a little around. So, yeah, I, I am encouraged as far as that goes. Um, target field is you know it's playing a little more hitter friendly than we thought, but it's nothing to scare me off of a guy like Barrios. Now, um, I mean, I am a little worried when. One of the first things that scouts and people talk about 
about a, a young pitcher or, or, or poison makeup because you know I want him to be a throw the ball 98 miles an hour and then be okay otherwise as opposed to vice versa. But I think he had the combination of of both stuff and poise that had me excited uh, coming into this year. And I think it was actually Chris, Chris Blessing, that was uh, talking about it a lot uh, on the first pitch tour about that sort of thing. He didn't guarantee, he didn't promise that he was going to have a great year, but he said down the line, that's what makes this kid special is the combination of stuff and just general you know, smarts and that sort of thing. Yeah, I always thought poise and makeup were more for uh, beauty contests uh, than than pitchers, but I, I guess I could be wrong about that. Uh, Ray Murphy, who's your sleeper pitcher? I think everyone's going to be talking about the innings limits next year, and if that devalues him a little bit, I'll be all over uh, Julio Urias of the Dodgers, who just, you know, when they actually took the shackles off him every, you know, once a week or so and put him on the mound, was just among the more eye-popping things I saw all season, what he could do to people coming at the left side, throwing 96, 97, and just really, you know, even though he's still, I think he's still a teenager today or just turned 20 this month or something like that, and he's just got eye-popping stuff. And even if you tell me right now that the Dodgers are going to cap him at, you know, 160 innings next year or something like that. I will throw those on my fan on every fantasy team. I can get a hand, get get my hands on them and take 160 innings and run because I think they're going to be really, really good. You know, when I was uh, figuring this out for this uh, podcast, uh, the names that popped up for me were Urias and Barrios, and uh, and a third guy whose name doesn't rhyme, and that's Luke Weaver of St. Louis. Uh, boy, 11.1 strikeouts per nine as a rookie. He was a little snake bit by home runs and uh, had a ridiculous 37% line drive rate, which I assume is going to come down at least a little bit. I think most bidders are going to be scared off at 5.7 ERA, 1.6 whip, but I think I'm going to buy the skills if Weaver lasts till the end game, and I expect that he's going to go fairly late. Uh, guys, uh, this has been a fantastic exercise. I'm already making notes about what you said because I'm going to be uh, starting my 2017 planning, as most of us probably already are. So, uh, Ray Murphy, thanks a million. What are you going to be doing in the off season? Uh, we're already in baseball forecaster mode, so you can uh, drop by baseballhq.com and place your order if you haven't already. Uh, it process is underway now. We'll have it uh, in the PDF in people's hands by Thanksgiving, and by then we'll be rolling into the winter meetings and the usual preseason prep. There's uh, there's no offseason. And do you have any uh, Baseball HQ site uh, improvements on the docket? Oh, absolutely. We've got a uh, bunch of things on a drawing board that we'll uh, turn our attention to after Thanksgiving once we uh, get clear of publishing this little uh, old-fashioned book thing. Old-fashioned, yeah. The old technologies are hard to kill off when the product is good. Todd Zola, what's your plan for the off-season? Well, I, uh, I'm i going to do a, a, a book of my own. I'm calling it the Z-Book. It's just going to be a, a short, not a short, a series of essays that I've either written over the years or, or will write now. I'm just kind of calling them into a, uh, a PDF that I'm going to make available with my, my Master's Ball stuff. So, um yeah, I'd like to name Z-Book because it's going to be online. It plays off my initial and all that kind of stuff. Then it's just the normal prepping for the uh, prepping for my site, prepping for drafts, and uh, you know, I projections guy. So I got to uh, actually have my request in to get my stats that I need, and I will be crunching projections and doing MLEs in the next week or two, and uh, should be ready and have everything ready for first pitch. And I was going to suggest this is our last podcast before First Pitch Arizona in uh, early November. Uh, Todd, give us 20 seconds on why people listening to this broadcast should be attending First Pitch Arizona. Uh, it, it's, it's just a fantastic experience. 
you're, my favorite part is you're about you're around a bunch of people who have that common thread of baseball, but you know you can talk baseball all you want, but you can it just you talk about so many other things as well. You get to know these people as friends, uh, not just colleagues or people that you uh, play with in leagues, and it, it's just a it's just a, an incredible experience that uh you know first started by Ron and Rick and carried on through the years now by Ray Brent and now Dave Adler added to the crew. Uh, I know it took more than 20 seconds. I apologize, but that's how good it is. Ray, last word to you. Why should somebody attend First Pitch Arizona? You know, for me, putting in the uh, legwork to get a lot of the program pulled together, I kind of just took a step back this past weekend as we kind of finalized the program and got it published up on the website. Uh, you know, we had filled in the last few blanks and all of that. And I'm just looking at the program, you know, the sessions we have planned for the weekend. And I'm like, you know, even though I've been, you know, shaping it for the last couple of months, I just st- st- stood back and looked at it and said, boy, this is going to be a lot of fun. There's just a lot of people I want to hear from. From uh, you know, We have a keynote speaker from Josh Stein, the associate GM of the Padres, and you know, that was a good get for us even before the A.J. Preller stuff broke. So now that's going to be a really interesting session. Uh, you know, a couple of other interesting topics on things like player development. Why, does, why do guys like Jose Barrios have trouble transitioning to the big leagues while guys like Corey Seager and Trey Turner make short work of the transition. You know, we'll have some, you know, really smart people talking about questions like that. And then all the stuff Todd talked about, about, you know, just the random conversations and common threads throughout the course of the weekend. Uh, You know, it's a month away. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Can't say enough good things about it. All right, guys, Ray, thanks very much for helping us out. Uh, We'll be in touch maybe about the winter meetings, if not sometime around pitchers and catchers. Thanks for your good work all year on the show, Patrick. Todd Zola, you've been a repeat guest here at Baseball HQ Radio many times, and I hope it continues many times more. Thanks so much. My pleasure, gentlemen, and we'll, uh, we'll see you guys soon. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, October the 7th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 46 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season, our regular season Fantasy Roundup edition. I also want to thank our guests on the roundtable, Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com and Todd Zola of Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. Both guys are so well-informed and interesting, it's a real pleasure to have them on the podcast, and I hope you agree. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be off for a while as we take in the playoffs and the World Series. Watch for us around the start of spring training. Maybe earlier. There's lots of off-season trades and player moves. Now, during this show, I've played a couple of clips featuring Vin Scully, who has retired from calling Dodger games after a long and distinguished career behind the mic. You know, they say about anyone who has the gift for announcing that he could sound good reading a grocery list. And what do you know? I found a clip online of Vin Scully reading a grocery list. I'll leave that with you, along with my best wishes for you to enjoy the playoffs, the holidays, and everything else in your life. So long. Well, let's see. We've got a dozen eggs, a quart of milk, a loaf of bread, a can of frozen orange juice, six small white onions, a green pepper, garlic powder, a package of American cheese, pickles, kosher that is, 
bananas, cornflakes, maple syrup, toothpaste, paper towels, toilet paper, six bars of soap, hot dogs, quarter pound of chopped meat, steak, lamb chops, package of spaghetti, three apples, bologna, cottage cheese, a pound of butter, two ears of corn, beer, ketchup, peanut butter, soy sauce, and a half a pound of coffee. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.